0: Well, I'm going to fly through this because um, it's a, this is going to be a fun message, I think, but I hope it's a little bit challenging. There, there's always, whenever you bring a challenging message, I think that the balance is, is that you don't want to challenge people so far that they feel defeated. You want to challenge them so that there's something of hope, a seed that gets deposited where something previously that they didn't feel capacity for comes to life. So that's my singular goal. If you hear nothing else today, it's that... I believe that the Lord is gonna deposit seeds in us as a people to become a missional family like never before. The topic of the day is being a missional family. It's as simple as eating and drinking. How many of you eat and drink on a daily basis if you're not on a fast? Good answer. How many of you are really into intermittent fasting right now? Yes, that is the the fad. It's so popular, I'm thinking about trying it. I, I resist the things until it's like, I feel like I can't really resonate with the culture right now if I'm not fasting 16 hours a day. Honestly, I feel like every third one of you is intermittent fasting and raving about it. And I'm like, you understand that means not eating anything. Like for vast amounts of the day. I don't understand it. But it's very popular right now. And um, that has nothing to do with anything. But Jesus fasted, so that's cool. Um, What I want to talk about today with being a missional family is... Opening up the concept of evangelism and throwing holes and punching at concepts of evangelism that I think we have looked at and grown up with maybe in the past if you've been a part of church for very long. How many of you grew up um, in spiritual church environments where like evangelism was a big, big thing? Okay. Now, how many of you would consider yourselves like, I get so excited to do evangelism. Like I wake up going like, oh, I cannot wait less hands were there. I don't know if you looked around. There were less hands. Even when I was in seminary, that's where people go to read the Bible and hope you don't die from spiritual starvation. But when I was in seminary, that was supposed to be a joke. Um, when I was in seminary, the, I remember one of the first weeks, a professor looks around and goes, how many of you feel like you have the gift of evangelism? Just like a room of maybe 50, 50 people. No, Like maybe one person was like a, like a half, half thing. The reality is, is that most people that are really passionate about faith communities that have kind of a pastoral bent to them, evangelism is not typically how they're wired. And it's a major element of the, of the life of the body. And Jesus had a heart for evangelism. But what I think is, is that culturally, we have missed his heart. I think we've missed Jesus's heart. So I want to I talk a little bit about how maybe culture has done that. Maybe some of the things that, that we have that petrify us. Not, not more than one or ten of you have come up at some point and gone like, sharing my faith is petrifying. I get extreme anxiety about spiders, snakes, and evangelism. <laughs> this is a normal thing in the church. So can we just okay, if you get anxiety about sharing your faith, you're, you're normal, and that's okay. I want to propose to you that it's a much better thing than we realize. A much better thing. Quick story. When I was in college, forced to do a lot of evangelism, uh, we did a lot of, of uh, lived in Santa Cruz one summer. I think I've told Santa Cruz stories before, but I don't think I've told this story. And we were, we had to go out on the beach like every day or something to, to try to t- talk to people and share with them the four spiritual laws, which they didn't mandate that we use a booklet, um, but they they mandated that we did something to try to bring people to a point of decision, point of decision. That's a scary kind of phrase. So it's like there's an agenda, kind of. It's like, it's not an agenda, but I'm like, well, you told me there's an agenda. I have to get them to do this. And ultimately, what I learned through that, there was a guy, I don't remember his name, but um, a couple of us walked up to him. And just started a conversation and got into just a concept of faith and found out he was a musician. And he was playing a show down in Santa Cruz. You guys have been to Santa Cruz? Super amazingly weird place. It's, it's, like, it's like all the odd places in, in America. It's like the Salem Witch Trials met Portland, met Venice, and then they all camped out and became hippies and went to Santa Cruz. <laughs> it's my opinion. I loved it, though. Uh, most, most comical people I've ever met. And so this, this guy was actually kind of not as weird as the norm, normal, normal person. But he was a musician, and, and when we were talking with him on the beach, he was pretty laid back, pretty conversational, wasn't too weirded out that we're trying to talk about faith. And then we get there to his house, his place of being, his community, totally different person. As soon as he saw us, he's like, you guys came, Wow. And we only had a few minutes with him, but it was like he opened up and we became connected and we became friends in a way that doesn't happen when people feel like you're coming up with like an agenda to talk to them about something, right? If I would live there, I had a new friend. And I didn't have any agenda besides becoming friends and doing life and coming to his house. I think there's something in the life of Jesus that we need to take, um, not take for granted in that. Luke 19 maybe is a key. Turn with me, if you would, on your phones, and the three of you that have Bibles. I'm actually using my Bible today because I'm spiritual. Just kidding. It's because uh, I have notes in it. Jesus and Zacchaeus. Uh, Zacchaeus is, is that guy that we make children's songs about. He was super short, probably like this tall they say, if that means anything to you. And then he climbed a sycamore tree, and we, we make children's songs about it. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, which obviously the song was written by a Scotsman. But um, <laughs> cause I would never say wee little man in a song. Like, it's the weirdest thing for an American to say. But we enjoy it. Um, so Zacchaeus is known for that. This whole story is much more about his house, let me briefly read this story to you. So Jesus is entering Jericho, and he's passing through. There was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was super rich, and he was seeking to find out who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he couldn't because he was small of stature, which is a nice way of saying, we little man. So he ran on ahead, climbed into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass by. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up, and he said to him, Zacchaeus. Hurry and come down. I must stay at your house today. So he hurried, he came down, and received Jesus joyfully. And when, and when they saw it, they being the religious leaders, they all grumbled, saying, He has gone to be with the guest of a man who is a sinner. Emphasis on sinner. Sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So what's going on here? Uh, A couple things. The religious leaders had no interest in a man, a tax collector like Zacchaeus, being brought in to their holy family. Jesus was completely subverting that and saying, you don't understand what the family of God looks like. He emphasizes that by calling him a son of Abraham. He's in the family. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save these kind of people that you think are completely unclean, unsavable, and that we should stay away from, that we should accuse with titles like sinner... And that we should rationalize our reason for keeping them out. So we don't go to them. We set up an entire system to keep them away from us. But here's the thing. I must stay at your house today is a word of honor. Jesus honored someone before he deserved it. He also shouldn't have known his name. But it was common in that day and age that a prophet would know who somebody was. So this was admonishing Jesus for being a true prophet in that day and teacher that people were following. And it was also common that when someone began to follow an influential rabbi, they would oftentimes give a significant offering. In this case, Zacchaeus, in his own unction, decides to give four times... A restoration of anything that he's taken from anyone unjustly. Notice Jesus did nothing to convict Zacchaeus. Besides, I'm coming to your house and giving you honor. When everyone in the religious order says that shouldn't happen because of who you are. My favorite part of this entire passage is what Jesus doesn't do. What do I say to my friends? What do I do? What's my argument? How do I convict them that they need Jesus? Well, why don't we try honoring them and having a meal? That seems to be Jesus' only strategy. He takes this really seriously. In fact, This concept of clean and unclean, where you're guilty by association, we still have that term in society. Jesus ultimately, in his new covenant message, is saying the complete opposite of guilty by association, which was exactly what the Pharisees and religious leaders said, guilty by association. Jesus says, no, not guilty by association. What previously was unclean and would thus make you clean by associating with it, I now say My holiness, my cleanliness, my assignment from heaven is to say, you're clean. Go and do the same. It's a completely opposite mindset. And I think we can still do that. If you'll notice, the most passionate people in the church today tend to have predominantly Christian friends that are also part of the church. That's natural in the sense of you're running after God, the people that are running after God with you are usually the ones right beside you doing the same things. But could I really urge us to look at the rest of the world that we've been deposited in and say, what if I started looking at life where I wasn't in survival and putting up an imaginary line of trying to surround myself with only people that believed and thought and lived exactly like I do, and I postured myself in such a way that yes, I I get my strength from a strong, beautiful, Jesus-loving community, but I put myself in an environment because I believe that I've got love to give. I've got people I want to meet with no agenda besides honoring them, loving them, and calling out Their divine purposes that God sees them, loves them, knows them, qualifies them, and wants them. You don't have to do that with a message. You do that by sharing your table. Your table is who you spend time with. It doesn't have to be a meal, but it probably needs to include some. And it should probably have some decent wine. I'm just saying it's biblical, and it's why we have wine at Alpha. So the... The beautiful part about this is that Zacchaeus feels that he is not guilty by association with Jesus. And that message is how Jesus subverts this concept of grace into everything he does without even saying it. Can we start to live grace without saying it? So, Judaism traditionally thought of this concept of restoration. Uh, or restitution that that Zacchaeus did as the equivalent of, of forgiveness. But here it responds to grace and invites this concept in. In ancient accounts of discipleship, a radical response with possessions was a certain sign of a newly acquired devotion to the teacher. So what we have here is a man that has started following the way of Jesus with no message from his rabbi. It was a felt message at a table. Amen. Okay, so I want to highlight a couple other scriptures because Luke is obsessed with this, because Jesus is obsessed with this. If you flip back, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but if you flip to just a couple chapters back in Luke 15, this is what he says. 15 verse 1. If you look at this whole passage, it's about the parable of the lost sheep. But the first couple... Passages you may not even know because oftentimes when someone talks about the lost sheep thing that we've all heard, he goes out, the shepherd goes out, to, he has 99, and then there's one lost, so he goes after the one, right? But that begins with 15 verse 1, which again is, I'm going backwards, but this is segueing in to chapter 19 with Zacchaeus. 15 verse 1, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, meaning Jesus. They were getting really close. So the tax collectors and sinners wanted to be close and associate with Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled again. That's the word for, like, God can't stand you when you're grumbling. Grumblers and complainers, he says. He wants to spew you out of his mouth. That's essentially what the Lord thinks of grumblers. And he always is talking about religious people for the most part when it's happening. And the Pharisees and scribes said this, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Like, the worst thing they can say is that Jesus eats with them. There's something that happens when you take the time for a meal in exchange. I know this is a cultural thing, and it means much more to their culture of honor than to our culture. But at the same time, when was the last time you shared a meal with someone who believed something completely opposite to your belief system? When was the last time? How, or how many times a year does this happen? It doesn't happen that often in our lives. It doesn't. And if it does happen a lot for you, here's my hand, here's your back. Thank you. <laughs> I'm not being sarcastic. Like, Receive the spiritual pat on the back. Well done. It's not the normative act for most people. This man receives sinners and eats with them. Then he tells the parable. What man having a hundred sheep if he has lost one? And goes on about the 99. And he says, verse 7, Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Jesus is nice enough to use their language. They're the ones accusing people of being these horrible sinners. The concept of sin is simply those who've got guilt and shame that need to be covered. The Pharisees use the term as in there's nothing you can do with it. You're screwed. You're far from God. He doesn't want you. Jesus sarcastically refers to them as the righteous. You who are righteous, you Pharisees, in other words, you who are not righteous at all but are calling them sinners, I didn't come for you righteous. I came for them sinners. Why? Because he has a gift to cover all guilt, all shame with grace. He gives his life for this. He gives his words to this. He gives his table to this. And he will seek them out. He sought out followers that were tax collectors. In verse, in verse four, or chapter 14, I'm not going to read all that either, but you can just turn one page backwards probably if you're in the Bible, and there's this whole parable of a great banquet. In other words, Jesus is going on and on and on about the concept of the table and feasting and how this teaches us to understand how the kingdom of God works, how our lives work, and how we should associate with people. And the ways that people that seem close to God and those that seem far from God, it's not as it seems. Flipping all the way back to chapter 5 of Luke, you're accidentally getting a thematic study of the book of Luke on the concept of tables and eating. And this is the last thing I'll say out of the scripture with this. Jesus is calling his his first disciples in chapter 5. And all the way in verse 30, this is what happens. Levi, one of the guys he first had just called to follow him, then makes Jesus a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with him. What is he saying? Levi's friends are at the table. When Jesus invited Levi to follow him, he, he, by proxy, invited all of Levi's friends. So who is at the table with him? All of his friends. When you just find one to bring to the table, when you re-represent Jesus to someone, one person, you, by proxy, have given a new image of the face of Jesus to every single person they know, all of their friends, all of their family, everyone else they come in contact with Jesus never says I only want to meet with you none of your friends are invited in fact every single time he has a meal with someone all of those person's friends are there and they're all watching oftentimes Jesus allows two divisive groups to watch the meal together like they're having a debate over wine and Mediterranean cuisine It's like Jesus' favorite thing. Enjoy the show. I'm going to eat while you do this. I'm going to say almost nothing. These people you're trying to condemn are going to have their lives transformed. By my love, by my honor, by this glass of wine, olives, and some probably amazing bread. So, Levi throws this feast... And the Pharisees and the scribes again grumble at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. Can you see the theme of Jesus' life and ministry? It's around a table, and it's around the people the religious leaders don't want at the table, And Jesus is not afraid to offend and to be condemned by association. Can we please not be afraid to have a meal? Can we please start setting up our life where the table is the demonstration of the body of Christ once again? That's the invitation. So, all this talk, <clears throat> Jesus has a message. He's, he has an overwhelming obsession with those far from him. Jesus church building. I believe the closest thing to a church building Jesus had was a table. He has this new message that's put up beside the old message, and that new message is what previously was unclean is now made clean. He drives this point home just a few passages before. 5, chapter 13. So before this whole thing with Levi is what? The cleansing of a leper, 5, verse 13. And he stretched out his hand and touched this leper who had just come up to him and said, if you will, can you make me clean? This guy is not supposed to come up to somebody ever because it's a highly contagious disease. And once you have it, you're exiled from society. And when this guy sees Jesus, he falls on his face and begs him. So he has humility and he has faith. He comes to Jesus and immediately Jesus says, yes, stretches out his hand, I will, be clean. And he starts his entire ministry and his table ministry with the declaration of what was previously unclean, I make clean. They were obsessed with the cleanliness of the physical body, the spiritual body, and the table food was clean or not clean. If you still know Jewish people, they're obsessed with what's kosher and what's not kosher. Clean and unclean. And Jesus is saying, what you think is unclean, I make clean. What previously in the law of Moses says, it will contaminate you. Go and show yourself to the priest, it says in this passage. Why? Because he wants them to do according to the law what Moses had them do when someone that was previously unclean was made clean or was healed. They could go back, be seen by the priest's and then be brought back into society. So what Jesus wants is he wants this guy who's an outcast to go to the people of authority and have a declaration of wholeness and cleanliness attached back onto them and then be invited back into the family. And then all these other statements of sinners and the table are made in that context. It's super good. We don't have more time to go into it, So, to to summarize those passages, notice how Jesus deals with the sinners versus the religious leaders. Don't miss that. He goes after these people, he becomes friends with them, and he becomes friends with their friends. He never told Zacchaeus or any other sinner that you are a sinner and need to know you're a sinner. That's not our job, nor did he ever care. He knows that every single person that's far from God wrestles with the reality of guilt and shame and needs their father to cover them. And that's what Jesus is coming in to do. He doesn't accuse the lost sheep, he doesn't accuse the prodigal son, which is in the chapter after the lost sheep. It's all about an amazing dad who doesn't care what the son has done and he's after him. To declare identity, to declare purpose, to declare come back in. Here's my ring, here's my robe, here's a feast. Here's a table. The entire underlying message is how Jesus loves the sinner to repentance and following him, and he does it with the picture of a table. He loves through honor, not by threatening to take it away. So, why do we do this thing called Alpha? Some of you today are new and don't know what Alpha is. I want to explain a bit of Alpha to you and why we do it, and then we'll close. And this will take a minute. I've got not many. <laughs> so, um, why do we do alpha? You got it. You're on top of it. I, I'm going so I don't have to keep straining my neck. I'm gonna find that spot. Alpha. Okay. So it's a series of dinner conversations that explores life, spirituality, faith in a fun, non-judgmental, and open environment. We've said that over and over and over again. I want you to look at that. Get that into your skulls. (laughs) It's perfect for skeptics, curious people, anyone with major doubts or hurts, or just those who what? Amen. Real life issues, new friends. So it's for everybody. But here's the thing. We don't talk about the deepest questions of life. We do a whole lot of other things. And what Alpha does, and why we talk about this twice a year when we launch this, is because we want to keep our missional family focus, fresh. We want this to be the ongoing place that we wrestle with these things, that we pray about these things, that we aren't always comfortable with these things, and that we're, we're putting ourselves in positions to, to see what God might do. Okay, so what we end up doing at Alpha is very simple. We have some food, good food, hopefully, for the most part. It's set up like a dinner party. We watch a short film. People in LA love films. These films are well made. And then we shut up and we invite discussion of the deepest questions of life without an agenda to convince anyone of anything. I've never never enjoyed the process of being convinced of anything in my life. Actually, that's not true. I like to argue. I do like the process, but it's only when I get a debate and nothing has ever changed my mind when i'm in debate mode how many of you in a debate have ever changed your mind so let's not debate anything ever again if you ever want anything positive to happen debate to me is recreation it's 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 not it's not agenda driven if you have an agenda why would you debate Have you ever watched any news program where they have a debate going on, and the person just goes, oh, you win. My favorite, I follow a lot of different news things, and and I love when they go, this person demolishes this person in an interview. And so I get all excited. I'm like, oh, this should be fun to watch. And I watch it, and I go like, no one got demolished? Like, this person didn't think, I'm thinking like, oh, that person just, you read the headline, and you go, that person just got stopped in their tracks and goes, you know what, you win. (laughs) Not once has that ever happened. We need to get the concept of debating facts about our faith out because you will never win any argument, ever. In fact, and it's also really hard to see a person for who they are and to love them and honor them if your your agenda is convincing them of something. And I never see Jesus do this one time. So, all of you worried about what to say, here's the good news. You don't need to say anything. The key to evangelism, number one, don't say anything. <laughs> In fact, a lot of you need to shut up. <laughs> so that's what the agenda will look like. We, we, let, we let friends talk, and then we don't solve anything. And then we can stay and hang out over a glass of wine, or they can go home, and they can come back, or they can never come back. They're invited either way. There's no pressure. So that's what Alpha looks like. Um, but why do we do this? We have, um, I'm, I'm stealing some slides from my friend Garrett Vintage Church um, in Santa Monica. I have known about Alpha for, for many years. Alpha has been um, shown in like 200 plus countries thousands and thousands and thousands of times. It's a, it's a course that essentially explores, you know, I've already said that, the deepest questions of faith. But it's set up in such a way that it's really easy to run one whether you're in a hall of four, or 500 people or you've got five people in your living room. Uh, our friends at Vintage that started in Santa Monica, the church planted in 2011 with just a handful of people. Uh, Gare's actually from the church in London that developed the Alpha Course, and they literally had almost no one show up for the first one, two, three, four years of its existence, somewhere in the 10 to 20 person range for the first four years, four years, and, and then you can see the growth in the last, in the last few. They've had over 400 people coming to each Alpha. They run it three times a year. Now their church obviously has has grown and so forth in the past years but the point is is that this is not this is not normal for the culture of an American church to do something like this and it took a period of time to build it into their DNA and now it becomes the lifeblood of what they do and and I believe that What happened in my spirit wasn't that that I didn't know what Alpha was or that I was all for this. It was that I saw it done in a way that wasn't like the other ways I've seen something done. Have any of you done something where you're like, yeah, I'm familiar with that, and then you see someone do that thing or show you it in a new way, and you're like, well, I haven't seen it done like that. It'd be great if I had an example right now, but I don't. Um, This is my example. This is one of those things. Uh, Israel, this is my example. I never wanted to go to Israel. I was like, I've traveled the world. I really don't want to get on and off a tour bus. It looks super boring to see a bunch of old stuff in rock. Then, a handful of years ago, a friend gave me a free trip. And so I said, shoot, I'll go. And it completely changed my reference. The way he did the trip completely recalibrated my mindset of what it could look like. And now we've been three times, Sue and I, and it's been amazing. And you should all go to Israel. And you should all do Alpha, and it's because I think Alpha is the best tool that the church has to do evangelism like Jesus did evangelism around a table. And I'm going to go quicker now. So there's been a crisis of evangelism in our country. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. And you don't need to spend a lot of time kind of wrestling with this. But what's going on in our culture today? If you like the terms postmodern, post-Christian, or whatever else, uh, those are real terms. Some of you have no idea what that is, and that's totally fine. But the reality is, is that we are in a state of being in our culture that objective truth has been replaced by self-opinion. Everyone has an opinion. They don't really care what the truth is. People don't care about who the authority is. So they don't care if the, the church, who's in charge. They don't really care. And people don't really care about what evidence you give them. So an argument's not going to care. They're not going to care about that. They want to have an experience with a living God or something else. They just want to experience something. And if you can help them experience something, you might get their attention. We're in a post-Christian society. We're no longer the majority. We're the minority. Have you guys noticed? Yeah. And I think this is a good thing. We've gone from the center of life of America to more of the fringes. We've gone from the respected people. When you say, oh, the Christians, that used to be a respected thing. Now, if you hear Christians, it's not usually as respected. Some people, it's like they view it as completely hypocritical and heinous. So we've gone from respected to disrespected. And the result is there's a lot more opposition, hostility, and a big increase of unchurched and dechurched people. I think the latest numbers I saw was there's something like 45% of the population is completely unchurched. And 55% of the people that would call themselves church, whatever the heck that means, believe that the message of Jesus is to live a good enough life so you can go to heaven when you die. In other words, 75% of people in our society have no idea what the message of Jesus is all about, which is good news. You have plenty of people to invite to the table. I don't know anybody. Okay, and then you don't know 75% of the people in society, and that might be true, but let's pray then. Maybe your first prayer is, change that, Lord. I need to know more people. So evangelism has been in crisis. We have spiritual opposition, cultural opposition, church opposition, even in the church. We have, we've had things like the seeker-sensitive movement, um, where, where everything is so kind of like soft that like you're not really saying anything of weight. Uh, The church growth movement is all about, you know, let's just make the most attractive thing so that more people come here and we just are, you know pulling people from X, Y, and Z. Now there's always a reality that there are people that are hungry for an authentic church experience and they're not satisfied where they're at. And we acknowledge the fact that if you're here because you were somewhere else and our house resonated more deeply with your spirit and you felt the release of God to come here, that's wonderful, and we say amen to that. But we're not here for the existence to pull people away from other churches, we're not. We're here because 75% of the population hasn't encountered the person of Jesus. The church is the only membership-oriented society on earth that exists for the purpose of its non-members. And we need to be reminded of that. Individual opposition, fear of rejection, there's, there's shame around the concept of evangelism, and then we have this mindset that evangelism is only for the extroverts and the experts. So, like, your pastor should do it for you. It's a lie because I'm not that good at it. And you don't need to be good at it either. If you don't have an extroverted personality, many of us think that that's the issue. No, you all eat. So that's the message today. It's about the table. It's about the communion. It's about the relational leverage that we all have to love and to honor. And then there's, there's even theological opposition, um, which, which is, is like, what is evangelism supposed to be or not supposed to be? Um, Barna, didn't Cameron work for Barna at some point? Yeah. 47% of Christian millennials believe it is wrong to share one's personal beliefs with someone of a different faith in hopes that they will one day share the same faith. That's interesting. Now, my first response is like to get offended at that. How dare they? Weak softies. Then you're like, well, why do you think that is? Any thoughts? I don't think I'm going to get a response. Okay. So the the reality is, is that, especially millennials... The reason why they think it wrong isn't because they think it's wrong to share for their faith. Why? Because millennials are happy to tell you about their intermittent fasting. Are they not? Or their vegan diet, James? Yeah? No one has a problem with sharing your faith. It's your faith in what? And there's a stigma attached to the Christian faith. And so there, we have a presupposition that people don't want to hear it, or they've already heard it, or they've been burnt by it. So as soon as I open my mouth about it, that they're going to be like, roll their eyes and whatever. And the problem with that is that it's probably true. If you pull up next to a coworker and say, hey, bud, you want to grab a coffee and talk about Jesus? How many of you have a lot of confidence that that's going to go super hot? I'm just curious. The millennials are absolutely confident it's not. If you're not a millennial and you're, and you're over 60 in the room, you're like, "What's wrong with talking about Jesus as my coworker?" And God bless you, and I feel like you have the anointing, and you should probably do that. Yeah So that was, that was Barna. So how do we revive evangelism? I think we need to be reminded that Jesus had a passion, a purpose and a priority. He had a passion for people, and his whole thing, John 3:16: "For God so loved. That he sent his son. It all came out of this passion for people and love for them. He had a purpose. I've come to seek and save the lost. Meaning, his purpose was to go after them, not them. Go after the people far from God. Not the religious people. Not the righteous. And then he had a priority. And that goes back to Luke 15. To go from the 99, to go after the one. It's significant. Implications for us. We mentioned that already. We are not here just to have conversion growth. We're not here um, to to ignore questions. We want to wrestle with questions in our preaching, in our small groups, in Alpha, in every way, shape, and form. We want to pray that we be salt and light and present in this city. And so that the 75% of society that has no vision and hope to even have questions to wrestle with this would maybe perk up, pay attention, and have a conversation. That they would make a friend with someone like you and I, and they'd be like, uh, I never thought about that. I actually like these people. That would be a massive win. Yeah. That our worship songs would start not ignoring this. Yeah. And that our evangelism really would be for everyone. So a new model. Oh, I really need to fly. Okay. <laughs> this is really good stuff, though. I hope you'll enjoy this. So in the 50s, if, if, you, guys are, if you guys were around there... Not many of you were. Who's a, who wants to claim they were around the 50s? <laughs> there there was this concept of of let's have some conviction moments. Billy Graham, the cr- Billy Graham crusade stuff all came out of that era where it was essentially like you've got these, the, the people understand that Christianity is popular, relevant, they, they have a certain understanding of truth, respect, they're inquisitive about Jesus and so forth. So all you have to do is give them a moment of conviction and they will be coming in in droves. You just got to get a beautiful southern drawl and a gorgeous head of hair, and Billy Graham can just get on TV or in a big stadium, and they'll come down playing this horrific Christian music, like in in, in, in record numbers. It's amazing. That's that's kind of the, the mold that came out of the 50s. And then in the 70s and 80s, we, we kind of shifted to this concept that we needed to offer more proof. So there was this reality that Christianity was boring, irrelevant, and untrue, and people had questions about Jesus. So we got into this offering proof. There was, there was books on, like, the evidence demands a verdict and, and uh, Bible studies and contemporary seeker-sensitive services and all these things. Uh, all of a sudden, we allowed people to have a little bit more inquisitive nature. There was still a bit of respect, and there was still a popular Christian culture in our, in our culture. Um, then, fast forward to the present day, notice the little man, he, he's, he's running away, she's running away, proof and conviction are not enough anymore, people are unaware, they, they look at the church as harmful, they want to have self-discovery, they want to have their own experience, they want to discover their own personal truth, They're, they, they, they can't stand things that are intolerant, the church is unpopular and They see the church as something that's rejected the vast majority of society. Why wouldn't they run away? And our proof and conviction molds and methods haven't worked. Jesus is no longer a valid option in our culture. We'd much rather, society-wise, look at yoga, meditation, other kinds of therapy, retreats even that aren't church-related. And we have other culturally appropriate alternatives. I keep skipping through the next couple because I want to go faster. Um, Rico Tice says this, 30 years ago, if I were speaking with an atheist, that atheist would most likely be a Christian atheist. That is, the God in which the atheist did not believe would be the Christian God, which meant that the categories for discussion were still on my turf. You understand that? the Christian atheist turf. That can no longer be assumed and so even our efforts at evangelism are troubled by the fact that Christians live in a different world that seems alien to many people around us. Absolutely alien. Can anyone relate to that? I'm starting to see more and more and more. And then we have this this concept of the five thresholds that I think is a much more healthy understanding. Don um, Everett says this. Um, There's this concept of being a trusting Christian Trusting a Christian, sorry, the lowest level of maturation for someone is going like, I, I could care less about what the church or God or Jesus has to say. But level one would be like, oh, I actually have a friend that I trust that's a Christian, and I like them. They would be coming like, I am, well, you know what, now I'm curious to actually know more of what they believe. Then they would be more opening to change something about their life. Seeking after God in this person of Jesus. And then entering this place that Jesus calls the kingdom, his realm. His, his place of existence, where the family of God exists. That's, that's what the, the... If you're going to put things on a scale, which I hate scales, it's easier to use banana. This is what our mindset of evangelism is supposed to look like. The ripening of a banana. You have no message. You have an assignment... To love human beings, to honor them, to call out who they are, to invite them to the table, and to watch the ripening process just happen before your eyes. If someone's a green banana and they go one shade more light, meaning that they go from like, I don't like Christians, to now I'm like, I don't like Christians, but I like that one. That's beautiful. And you have have played your part in re-representing Jesus to somebody. We don't have an agenda to be like, I want everybody to pray this prayer at the end of Alpha or when they have to come to church next week or whatever else it is. That's ridiculous. I want to introduce people to Jesus, and if they don't want to know Jesus, maybe they'll like me, and maybe we'll be friends. It's really that easy. I got to keep going. So what do we do? This is what we have. People are running the other direction. And what are we supposed to do? Are we supposed to do something like try? Are we supposed to do something with with Sundays better? Ignore it. Pray for revival. Here's the thing. A lot of us are coming out of this kind of charismatic stream. And I believe there's a lie underneath the charismatic stream that started with some really cool stuff. Why? Charismatics, we have a lot of stories about how we prayed for revival, and there was just this all-consuming, beautiful sense of God's presence that was entering into the meetings in the time of revival. Where people would drive by, they'd stop the car, and they would walk inside. And their lives would be changed. The problem with that is, is if that's your model for evangelism, you've just put your responsibility on Holy Spirit stopping cars out and compelling people. And you haven't even eaten. <laughs> so let's shift our mindset a bit. What if evangelism was easier, more effective and actually enjoyable for everybody? That's what we're doing with Alpha. Step 1, simply love people. Maybe you're not supposed to invite them. Maybe you're just supposed to be like, "You know what? I don't even I don't I don't even bother to intentionally love someone just for this unconditional purpose of loving them." Start there. Just love someone without an agenda to invite them to Alpha, please. That's so annoying. Just love people. There's a power in love. When we love people, it it changes their perspective of Jesus because the people that are claiming to know him are different. You are different. I know you people. You are different than most Christians. People want to be around you, people. The power of love. Next, what do we do about all this stuff? You know, the experiences, the, the, the reality that people have felt rejected, that, that, that they don't, they're not even after truth. What do we do with all this stuff? Well, love them, invite them to dinner, bring them to Alpha with no other purpose than allow them to go on a journey in Alpha that does all these things you'll see in a second. That's what, that's what the Alpha journey looks like. That's a red line. That's our our agenda. Is that we invite people to dinner, to a dinner party, and over a glass of wine, we just process and build a friendship, a relationship, and just let things go. No agenda. And if they don't want to come back, great. If they want to come back, great. No agenda. And then you can actually allow the ripening process to happen, because I can't turn a banana to anything. Um, I'd like Lindsay to come up and close us with a little testimony. Where's Lindsay? Um, hey, you can give her a hand, a round of applause. Yes, yes. Hello. <laughs> Grab this mic right here. And Lindsay joined us on this. Um, we, we went down to Santa Monica for a day of Alpha training and so forth this past week. She also attended Alpha this last go around. And she has a few words of encouragement to give us.
1: Yes. One of my biggest takeaways from this training was that evangelism is not a microwave. It's a slow roast. Evangelism is not a microwave. It's a slow roast. Mm. And getting to see the heart of the training of this Alpha program was great because it really helped me see how this ministry is really aiming to break the barriers of this culture. So many people are hurt by church. They're hurt by just the way that they've seen, like, this yeah. judgment in the church. And what Alpha does is it really identifies what those things are and makes the barrier, like, this low. And so in that training, we, we discuss of how, like, church here is our Sunday, but Tuesday is it's church for the unchurched. It's church for the unbelievers. And I think that is the heart of this ministry and getting to experience it outside of the, um, Announcements that go on. I really got to see. Of this is really an opportunity for us to bake this into the DNA of our church, and we're the 99, and we need to go find that other that one, and that this is a real great platform for that. And so I I know that each of you all, you guys have somebody that you have on your mind, and probably over the last couple months have been cultivating a friendship with. And the reason why I know that is because the Holy Spirit is in all of us, and He's led the leaders of this. Church Church to to build this ministry, and so I just want to encourage you guys. Like, identify who that is, and our job is just to send the invitation. Yeah. Like, that's really our job. Yeah. So easy. Um, yeah. And last word is First 1 Corinthians one seventeen. Um, not by words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And it's not going to be our words that are going to save these people. It's the an invitation, and Alpha is just an amazing platform to do that. So, amazing. yeah, I invite lots Stay, right
0: Stay right there. Um, Could I get uh, someone on worship to start to come up and to get ready to play? Because we're going to close. But, Lindsay, you're a uh, wonderful, bright, intelligent, attractive young woman. Would anyone like to go to a dinner party with her? (laughs) I take that as yes. Okay? Now... Do you, you've been to Alpha before, yeah. do you have any, like the way that Alpha runs, do you have any hesitations about your friends that like would never step foot in a church? Would you feel comfortable bringing them to a dinner party on launch night?
1: Yeah, it, yes, I would not have any hesitation. The reason why is because it's not church, it's literally a table, it's wine, that's somehow how I sell people, it's, it's community, and that's what people want, they want to experience community, they, they're so starved of that, and this mm-hmm. is what that is, so mm-hmm.
0: yeah. Amen. Amen. Now, um, that's, I think that's all. I might, I might come up with more questions. But that was beautiful. Give her a round. Yes. Amen. So, James, if you can find that slide, why don't we invite people? There's, there's several reasons. Number one, we're worried it won't be worth it because we've got, this is, in, in all seriousness, you guys have, have friends and loved ones and so forth that you've invested life into them. And oftentimes people aren't willing to compromise that relational bandwidth for something where I'm not like sure what this is going to be, right? And I totally get that. So pray about it. Just pray about that. Um, some of you are just scared, like I don't even know what to say, or I just don't know how to do an invitation. And here's how that might look. Here's how to. This is how it should go. Just in a text, even. Hey, bro. Or hey, girl. Hey what are you doing Tuesday? Uh, I don't know. Why? Just come to this launch party and charity fundraiser with me. Oh, cool. Where, when is it? Details. 6.30, blah, blah, blah. What we're going to do on Tuesday night is, is we're going to combine launch night with a charity fundraiser. I think we have that tied up of what charity it's going to be. But the point is, is that what we're doing is we're inviting, especially on launch night, to simply come and check it out where it's not like um, we're sneaking you into a course that's going to be about Jesus. It's going to be a launch night where we acknowledge from the front end, as everyone's grabbing their, their hors d'oeuvres and a, and a wine, to to essentially say, um, "Welcome to the party." Many of you are just here. We may not even know why you're here. We're 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 promoting two events tonight. We're starting this Alpha course that's all about this exploring life's deepest questions and. We're having a charity fundraiser for this awesome charity um, that we we're just going to share about. Uh, if you want to sew into that, great. If you don't, great. We're just glad you're here. If you want to come back, wonderful. No obligation whatsoever. And then we'll get into the night, and that's how it rolls. It's really that simple. You don't need to be able to explain things to your friends or whatever to come. Also, this isn't just for people that have no concept of God. This is for all of us. Many of you have deep questions of your faith, where it's like, what's the space that I'm supposed to wrestle with, like, this stuff? Alpha. We're going to have different kinds of groups set up. So if you don't bring a friend, uh, you can literally say, hey, this is kind of my spiritual life and who I am, and we're going to put you in a specific group to be able to wrestle with things that are appropriate for where you're at in life. So not all the groups are going to have a bunch of atheists in it. A lot of groups are just going to have Christians that have questions, and that's totally fine. Alpha's for everybody. Um, Some of you are needed to be those people that, that, that just process with the people with questions. And that's just as valuable. Some of you simply can't come because of your schedule or little kids or whatever else. Totally fine too. What we are doing today is inviting the Lord to stretch us as a community to become ones that open the table and to go after the one and to start to embed this in the way we do life. Okay, I'm done. Let's stand.